how sweet the sound The beautiful green grass growing from the ground The sun that shines on children at play The rivers, lakes and streams carry life They carry life They carry life Hey guys, thanks for listening to The Hustle. I'm excited for this week. We're finally getting some soul around here. We are talking to Mike James Kirkland. He was a uh, an excellent soul singer in the 70s. Sort of a contemporary of, you know, Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye. Obviously, those guys went on to, you know, have a lot more success. It's a shame. His two albums that he put out in the 70s have since become very highly regarded. There are those albums that DJs crate dig for and stuff like that. And he's finally getting some of the attention and notoriety that he deserved back then. It took longer than it should have. He's a great guy. He is very spiritual. And we talk a lot about our own views on spirituality, how it strengthened his life specifically. He's just a beautiful, beautiful, wise man. There are two forms or two genres of music that are like my my personal very, very favorite to discover. One is super obscure 80s alternative music and the other is obscure 70s funk, R&B and soul. And so I've loved discovering Mike's music He's a super nice, wise, lovely man. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. He called me from his home in Las Vegas. Tell me. Yeah, I don't know that much about you. I know the music that I've listened to. In fact, I got turned on to you, and I always try to start these off with how I discovered who it is I'm talking to. There's a so a website called allmusic.com. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's basically like any information you'd ever want to know about pretty much any artist, every album they put out, all of it is stored in this database called allmusic.com. They will have like an album of the day. And it's usually something from the past, you know, that if you're a music lover, check this out, and this, here's why. And about 10 years ago, Doing It Right was the album of the day. I'd never heard of you, and it got me curious. And so I downloaded it because uh, it's really hard to find. You and um, no, I didn't. Back then, I didn't oh. even know that it was out. I know I'm. Uh, oh. I'm incriminating Heartbreaker. myself here. Hardbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that how a lot of people have to find your music? Because it's pretty bootleg. A bootlegger, a confessed bootlegger. I know. I did. Oh man, what do, what do we do? Well, what do we do with such a guy? <laughs> I feel terrible. <laughs> However, I'm I'm hoping to kind of make it up to you a little bit by. You know, honoring you here, but that's what I—I uh, I didn't know what else to do, and I—and I was—I didn't know how to find your music, and so I thought, well, let's check it out, and I downloaded make it. Make the check. Make the I check payable. Make the check payable to Mike James Kirkland, and uh, <laughs> any 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 denomination. I'll give you an address offline. No, I'm kidding, of course. I take you up on that. If if I sent you some money and you sent me actual physical hard copies of those albums not in cd i don't collect vinyl unfortunately because i would just put my family in the poorhouse if i collect vinyl but if you have uh cds i would actually i would buy those off you happily i love those albums i think there's some around i'd rather buy them from you that way you got a piece of it but anyway the point of it is it sparked my curiosity and i've been curious ever since and not only that, I think I was thinking about it in preparation for our conversation. That was kind of a turning point. I've always been a real music connoisseur, but I think that was the moment 
when I started to become more curious or open to soul music specifically, I mean, I've always loved Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and, you know, the big names. But when I discovered you, that tuned me into there being a lot of really interesting, really excellent stuff out there that might be harder to find, but it's just as good. And I've been kind of on that kick ever since. You, to me, have been a really very fascinating figure for a long time now. I'm curious. So you, I, you know, I've been reading a ton about you. You grew up in Yazoo City. You moved to California. Now, one of the bios I read about you mentioned that you moved to California because of some kind of a racial incident back home. Are you at liberty to talk about what that is? Yeah, man. I, it, it's no secret. <laughs> really? No. Uh, that's one of the unfortunate parts about American history. It's sure. one of the impo- unfortunate parts about human dialogue. You know, I don't want to turn this into a political debate, but... Right, me neither. i tell you what one of my greatest agonies is right now. There's a young, well, you know, younger than me, a guy who sits in the White House. He's a brilliant man. He had great vision for America, and actually he saved a sinking ship. But this thing that happened to my brother 50 years ago or 60 years ago was a physical attack rooted in the same kind of hatred that is now focused on trying to destroy the legacy of of a great president. It's heartbreaking. You say it's forgivable because my commitment to Jesus makes me forgive, and I, I can't commit to Christ if I'm trying to hold grudges against people. Right. But that same commitment to Christ ordains me to say truth and speak truth to power. You know, we really need to get over this. But as you mentioned, my father, I can't even find the words to describe the magnitude of my father. Uh, Really? Incredible man. Like you said, you've seen the renowned movement people. But my dad was just as instrumental in bringing us through the stages of the Civil Rights Act as any person that ever lived. Well, my father was very active in the Mississippi. They had situations where they moved along to education. He drove the school bus for the high school. He taught my brother to drive the bus for the high school. And that brother who drove the bus for the high school is the one that was attacked by the white mechanic who ran the, the repair yard for the school buses. This thing is so diabolical until when you listen to the name of the high school, they were both called Yazoo City High School. Uh-huh. One was number one and one was number two. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes sense. And then you just yeah. take the you take the number and fix it where you think it should go. Yeah. And of course in the South, those melanin rich people, they were number two. So I don't know if I had been born someplace that hadn't experienced these things. I was in Mississippi when Emmett Till was murdered. I was uh, just I'm a little... I'm not sure if I'm out. familiar with that name. Emmett Till? That sounds really familiar, and I'm blanking on the story. Well, for your own edification, maybe you should Google it. it uh, this is a I short will. story of, of about a young... Young boy, about 14 years old, who came down from Chicago to visit his grandfather who lived in Mississippi. And he was accused of whistling at a white girl. Oh, right. Okay. That's how I know this. Yep. That's how and uh, was brutally murdered. Yep. I had forgotten his name. I was there, and it was a blanket of oppressive fear that covered 
young people like me because I think I was maybe six or seven years old at the time. But every time my dad walked out of the house, I was terrified. You know, oppression is something that you can't explain. You know, the story goes you had to been there. It shaped and formed a peculiar union of expression. And a lot of the cries that you hear and a lot of the things that they call soul music uh-huh. was, was just a heart crying out for freedom. It sure was. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is very well said. That's exactly what it was. You're right. Did life get easier when you moved to California? I mean, you were still a young boy, but everywhere at that point, I'm guessing, it's not easy anywhere you go. But was it easier? When we moved to California, mythologically, we had reached nirvana. We had died and gone to heaven until you started to confront the establishment, particularly law enforcement and other institutions. Uh, You know, as I look back on my high school and junior high school and elementary endeavors, I think you just kind of went along to get along when you were a kid. But in reality, in retrospect, you look back and you could see differences, uh, the way that Mm -hmm. one group of people were treated versus the other. I have a friend who played basketball at Arizona State University, and he was really a fabulous basketball player. He twisted his ankle, and he wanted to come out of the game, and the coach told him, your people don't need to rest. Just go back out there and and play. What? What? so, you know, the, the state or the place that you're located, there's a facade that some places are better than others. I don't know how to grade it. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, all, yeah. it all equals class system, degradation, sure. ridicule. You know, all those words are applicable here. But the fact that Barack Obama can't go to work and do his job because a coalition of hate decided on the day of his first inauguration that he would never succeed, that's a sick commentary. Is it better? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I read the Bible, and the Bible says that if any one person is being deprived, that then we all are. If I'm looking at things from the eyes of Christ, then no, there is, there is no better uh, until we learn to forgive each other, until we learn that in the eyes of God, there are no respecters of person. Yeah, I agree. I know this isn't religious text or anything. It's probably an odd place to find some inspiration, but... Do you remember that movie from the 70s, Oh God, with George Burns playing God? And yeah. he's having a conversation with John Denver, who's acting as the guy who suddenly is speaking with God and talking to God face-to-face. And I remember very distinctly in that conversation, not to get too religious for too long, but this is something that I take with me. In the conversation in the movie, John Denver is shaving, and he says, why do you let so many bad things happen? Why don't you step in and solve some of these problems? And George Burns, as God says to him, I did. I created you. And I made you guys, I'm paraphrasing all of this, but this is how I read it to inspire myself. I did. I created you. And I made you guys smart enough to figure this stuff out. And right. if you don't, that's, that's not on me. I made you so, to be a problem solver. You know, I think about that a lot, and and I know I'm twisting the direct quote or whatever, but what I take away from that is that the solution starts with me and not blaming God or Christ or any the influence of anything. All the tools that we should have to be common, decent people, we have at our disposal all the time, and yet we don't always choose to use them, and it's unfortunate. Okay, I want to talk about music. So when you're growing up, you moved to California, and I was reading in your bio, you're very active in your church, and that's probably where you are learning to sing. And when you're a young kid growing up with your brother Robert, 
is singing really the only thing that you're passionate about? Is that where you go all in on succeeding in your life, or do you have other interests than music as one of them? Well, you know how you how you city folks sit around the TV or the radio. Our after dinner entertainment was the family singing together. I don't necessarily think that I was the best singer in my family. I think my sister Jerry was just phenomenal. She this, really? this man, she could flat sing. Wow. And it was her and Robert's input that helped form my singing. But it was entertainment in the fact that we. We sang gospel music most of the time, but it was the things that we had heard from Sam Cooke and Lou Rawls mm-hmm. and Pilgrim Travelers, Five Blind Boys, Rosetta Thob, and you know the 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 James Cleveland, the roll call of so-called gospel uh, leaders of the time. We just duplicated their songs. My father was the vehicle that afforded my older brothers an opportunity to sing as a part of the local radio station on a, on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. I was not, quote-unquote, old enough to be a part of that group. I was six, seven years old at the time, and so okay. my, my sister, who was also younger than them, and I and one of our cousins, my mom's uh, daughter, we used to sing together at things that were called institutes, but the institute was a kind of a traveling church communal uh, sharing where one church would have the institute one week. Next week, it would move to the next church. And, okay. of course, a major portion of that institute or gathering was the singing of songs. And sure. there would be a number of different groups which uh, euphemistically were uh, referred to as quartet. Oh, interesting. Uh, it wasn't so many so much choirs as much as there were groups. And and one of the reasons that choirs were more big city, Chicago area things was that we really didn't have huge congregations. Uh, you know, 15, oh. 20, 30, 30 people in a church was about the yeah. size of a church. Okay. So to have a choir like you're looking at 30, 40 people, we didn't have 30, 40 people in the church. Yeah, yeah. So a, well, a, lot, okay. of, a lot of the singing was done by groups. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I cut my teeth, so to speak, uh, mirroring ah, the older guys, my brother and, and, you know, Lou Rawls and Sam Cooke started in the same arena. Uh-huh. And was, did, with so Johnny did Taylor Mike, and other people. Oh, I love Johnny Taylor. Oh, man. Yes. Now, did Mike and the Sensations, is that sort of where they were born, was in the, the choral group singing at your church and it's sort of i don't know if if going secular is the right term but it sort of went out of the church and onto the street and became more of like a marketable thing is that where that was born no mike and the sensation messed up my quest to be an all-american basketball player now i understand the message that my daddy left for me It was a long, long time ago And it didn't make much sense, you see But he said a man tries many things To get ahead in life But no matter what you try You got to find some misery and strife 
And the greatest message that I was ever told Keep what you got No matter what you do in life, my son Don't sell your soul No, 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 don't sell your soul It ain't worth it if you got to sell your soul so, okay, so that goes back to my first question. So in the beginning, it was music, but it was really basketball. That was your thing. The hard part of this is to tell this story myself without seeming like some kind of arrogant fool, and that's not my oh, point. No. But no, don't. Uh, Just tell my, it. My talents, I, I shudder at what God put in one man named Mike James Kirkland. It, it's oh, scary man. what he, was, he, he allowed me to be able to do, and not only do it, but do it well. I was a fabulous baseball player. I, as a matter of fact, I was scouted to play Major League Baseball by the New York Yankees. Really? Uh, I played uh, basketball, and actually I was about 60% the basketball player I was a baseball player, but I fell in love with wow. the game of basketball because no girls ever came to watch a baseball <laughs> game, but they filled up, the, filled up the stadium at the basketball court. Yeah, yeah. And it, how and tall it are you, Mike? Do you mind me asking? How tall are you? I'm six foot two. Okay, okay. Back then, you're probably more. It's not that far removed from the average. Nowadays, that's pretty short. But back then, I don't think that would have been too different. That's the thing that was so uh, so sick about my endeavor, is that rather than being allowed to play the guard position that my height was fit for. Because I could jump and I had some bulk and, and muscle and learned how to rebound the basketball, I played in the front court. So I was at least a small forward on most of the teams, really? but even sometimes played the power forward spot. So, oh, wow. Uh, at 6'2". At That's six crazy. Foot two. Yeah, I'm it was crazy. I'm 6'8", and, and I grew up playing basketball too, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. we used we used to take pride in beating up on you six foot eight guys. I know you. I'm sure you did. And I can't jump to save my life, so I uh, I'm sure you would have knocked me around. I'm just a big body standing there. That's all the skill I had. But anyway, so sports was more your thing, and then Mike and the Sensations comes in, and that derails the future you see for yourself in sport, right? Yeah, my brother Robert was the brain thrust behind Mike and the Sensations. When I was going to college, I had some night classes that I took at Santa Monica City College. To go from my house to Santa Monica City College, which was on Pico in Santa Monica, we would take La Brea up to Pico and we would pass by a supper club and jazz and supper club called the Parisian Room. And there was a culture in Los Angeles of jazz supper clubs Memory Lane, Pied Piper, the Cork, the Parisian Room. There was maybe about a 10-club circuit, and they would have, like, com- you know, little trios and things. But on Monday nights, they typically would, would have what was called Celebrity Night. And really, it was like an open mic where uh, they had a celebrity. And at that time, it was a woman named Larez Alexander. Uh, she was the MC for the Parisian Room Monday night celebrities. And Sam Fletcher and Ernie Andrews, Banks, and Barbara Lynn, uh, you know, the jazz singers of the era would right. come and, and, and kick it and sing a song and sit down. Lou Rawls would drop in occasionally, uh, O.C. Wow. Smith. So I got caught up in that because I had wow. watched, I spent my young life watching Earl Grant and Nat King Cole had back-to-back shows in, in Los Angeles. And when my dad made me mow the lawn every uh, 
Saturday. <laughs> yep. And after I finished mowing the lawn, I could run and watch the hour worth of those two singing shows. And then I'd go play Little League Baseball. Oh, wow. But I always wanted to sing in a supper club and, and sit in front of the piano bar or whatever uh-huh. and just and just do like Sam, like Nat King Cole. I went to college when I was 16. Really? Yeah. Were you an advanced uh, academic? Yeah, I guess you'd call it that. But I was. Okay. Yeah, that, that that that's what happened. I I I skipped past a grade. So when I was in when I was graduating, I should have really been a a, a junior. So sure. I was a okay. I was a, I was a young kid in in college, but I was big enough to fool the, the doorman, and I don't think he was fooled. He just let me come in. Uh-huh. And it, and his name was Frenchie. I can remember Frenchie really well. He used to let he used to let me come in on Monday nights when I was coming back from college. I used to get off the bus there, and I would meet my friends who had the car because they weren't going to the same school I was. Uh-huh. And we would go there, and I I would sing, and I'd sing a couple songs. When my brother found out about it, he jammed me up about it. And he said, "Man, why are you going down there giving away your talent?" Yeah. I said, man, I'm not giving away any talent. I'm just having some fun. You know, you uh-huh. catch a lady, catch a lady here and there, or whatever. Sure. You know, just just have some fun. He said, sure. if you're gonna sing, let me show you how to make money singing. I said, man, I I'm not really that interested in that. He said, no. <laughs> let me show you how this ought to go. And believe it or not, he taught me how to play baseball. He taught me how to play basketball. And he was my Guardian angel, you know he, yeah, he was a big, like it. He was a big old guy, uh, six foot five, and he could play. He could he could hit the baseball out of sight. He could shoot the basketball well. Is he still he alive? Me, no, we lost him ten years ago. Oh man, uh, that must have been rough for you. Oh uh, man, that was it. It took my life away. It took all of yeah. my heart out. But all yeah. of this music, all of this music that we're talking about. Uh-huh. It's Robert's music. I would write the songs pretty much interpreting what he was expressing uh, or the time that he, like he would say, man, it's time to write a song and let's write a song about such and such. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go away for about two minutes and he'd come back and say, the song ready yet? <laughs> really? I said, no, man, the song ain't ready. <laughs> uh <laughs> But you know he he would. It just came easy to him, right? He assumed it came easy to everybody. Well, you know, it was in him. It would just, it, yeah. it, it just, it poured out like that. And rather than take it personal and and perpetuate his own uh, status, he poured it into me. Uh-huh. And I figure he molded up a pretty good little protege. He he did a good job yeah. with uh, showing us how to get the situation done. So that's how. Mike and the Sensations came about because my brother had a, if I say arrogance, I don't mean it in a derogatory. Uh, how about right. self-assuredness okay. is, a be- is a better way to say it. Okay. Uh, he had a self-assuredness. He just believed he could do stuff. And he was the one son that truly kind of mimicked my dad uh-huh. was Robert because my father was the the thrust behind putting those kids on the radio. He yeah. taught he taught independent producer mentality. 
And my brother Robert caught that mentality so that he didn't have any fear to say, well, if somebody can produce a record, I can too. Yeah, yeah. And my dad had a saying, and I'll have to interpret it for you, but he would say, you don't know what I lied to be able to do. And, of course, the the city interpretation is that you don't know what I might be able to accomplish. Right, right. But that... That was his mantra. He he would say that consistently. That was kind of poured into wow. us as as young kids growing up. And my my brother Robert seemed to be the one that that seed took hold in and, and flourished. Yeah. He had his own business. He ran you know he ran his own business, but he also challenged the record industry. Yeah, man, how blessed are you to have these two strong, dominant male figures in your life? But who are guiding you in a in a good direction. You know, they're good influences on your life. That's not always the case. And obviously you, I'm guessing from what you're saying, it sounds like a lot of what you've accomplished in your life has been thanks to the the influence and the motivation and the, and the example, the prodding of those two. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I, I stand on their shoulders, and I don't have any hesitation to applaud the fact that I do. Uh, yeah. They they were giants for me, and whatever I'm standing right, right now, I yeah. owe it to them. Uh, I have other brothers, too, and I don't want to slight sure. them. Because right, right. All, all of them are contributors to uh, to who I am and what I've developed to be. I, you know, I have brothers older than me, but I have a brother that's almost 90 years old. He's the biggest Mike Kirkland fan in the world. He thinks <laughs> he thinks that I can okay. walk on water, but uh, yeah. And I I love him. If I you know I'd give anything in the world for him. Yeah. I have another I have another brother that's like ten years older than me. He's wow. still alive. So you know I'm very blessed. Cool. I had four brothers, and my two sisters are still alive. My younger sister, who's uh, three years younger than me, and then my my older mentoring sister, she was really my second mom. She taught me to read and all kinds of just stuff. Uh, when my wife, I mean, when she got married, man, I thought the world had come to it. And you asked me what's yeah. one of my biggest disappointments <laughs> was was some dude come take my sister out of the house. Oh, if, I had, man. if I had been big and strong enough, I would have broke his knee. Yeah, but, oh, well, Good for you. That is so great to have been brought up in such a strong family. When you went, and forgive me if I'm not categorizing this correctly, but you eventually go solo, right? You leave the sensations, and you go out on your own in the early 70s. Robert, I believe, is still a musical partner of yours, but he, he takes more of a backstage role, right? He's more management, production. He's allowing you, he's vaulting you into more into the forefront. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, the Mike and the Sensation name was his idea. So he his, sounds like he's always supporting you. He's happier oh. that way. He'd rather be the behind-the-scenes guy who makes things happen, and you're the talent up front with this beautiful voice and this great talent, right? Yeah, this, you know, like I said, it, this was his baby. He birthed it. The beauty of it was that there were just certain things that I didn't have to worry about. He would get those things done, he and that you. was yeah, that was a freedom for me sure. to to concentrate on the creative aspect 
And, you know, one of the, he was more musically astute. He was a greater music student than me. And the talent was a hindrance to me because I could sing, I could hear, and I didn't have to spend time plucking around on an instrument to yeah. be able to hear and write a song. I later learned to pluck around on an instrument, but that was like three or four songs into the career. Okay, okay. Uh, I would write the melodies and the lyric, and between he and myself, we'd bang out the chords that went with the melody and the music. But after that, let's say our second or third year in the music business, he had already become a pretty well-accomplished guitar player. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I, I would bang around on the piano enough to give him an idea what to play on the guitar. Right. And I I really, you asked me about a, a, a regret that I really never was able to dedicate myself to the instrument. Mm. I was able to dedicate myself to the vocal instrument, but to, to right. the piano. or the, I had a guitar. I had a piano. I mean, I've had them in my hands. Yeah. Yeah, but I I didn't have the discipline, unfortunately, yeah. to to really pursue the craft of play of being a musician. I agree. I, I have uh, a similar regret. My dad has taught piano my entire life. I've had a grand piano in my house as long as I can remember, and I don't play the piano. And it yeah. came from. You can probably relate to this in some ways. I was more of an athlete growing up, and he conducted choirs and symphonies and things like that. And so he wanted that for me, and that wasn't what I wanted. And so he wasn't the dad who could come, you know, he wouldn't come shoot a basketball with me. He wanted me in practicing on the piano. And I I didn't want that because I, I thought I was of myself more as an athlete. So I rebelled by not doing that thing. And then, of course, as soon as you're old enough and you have the wisdom that you should have had all along, you know you blew it because you didn't, like you said, devote yourself enough to this beautiful instrument that was there all along if you had just yep. disciplined yourself enough to to give it a shot. I have to you know, regrets. It's interesting that you, you mentioned your father in that context because I remember one of the greatest challenges that my father laid out in front of me, and he was so clever the way he did it. When I was growing up, uh, I, went, I went to Dorsey High School. Okay. And there was a myriad of very talented people at Dorsey High School. Billy Preston was there with me. Jerry Peters was there with me. Ron Townsend, who sang with the Fifth Dimensions, was and was older than us, but he was on the campus and he had interaction with us. And we would actually put on these musicals for Christmas and other what they called assemblies at Dorsey High School in Los Angeles. And that would filter over into my church activity. And when I sing in the choir, Mel Carter used to sing with us 
uh, Mel's mother directed our choir. So we had a challenging aspect to our life is that some really big names was frequently moving in and out of our church community. Uh, The L.A. Community Youth Choir and the Los Angeles Community Choir had a guy named Ted Watson. Ted used to sing with our choir at at our church at St. Andrew's Missionary Baptist Church. The youth choir, which I was involved with, we had a spinoff four-man group, which the organ player and her brother and me and another young lady had a group that we would travel and sing together as a spirit, you know, what we call a spiritual, but it was a gospel group. My sister, Jerry, came to see one of the musicals we that I was performing in. And I can remember that I sang a song by James Cleveland called The Love of God. And while I was singing the song, it touched her so that she actually jumped up and ran out of the church because she didn't want to break down and cry inside. She ran out and she was just overjoyed. Wow. And that night, my father said, boy, you going to sing one day. <laughs> yeah. I thought to you myself, I said, what do you mean I'm going to sing one day? I'm killing it right now, dude. Can't you hear? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. So what do you, you call this? You, yeah, so were you outside yeah. when I was doing all this? It festered in uh-huh. my mind over the years. And when I did Victim of Circumstance... My father came to me and he said, boy, you know, that song is good. that you mentioned earlier. Uh, It's called Love is All We Need. For those of us who have and those of us who have not Love, 
love is all we need in the world Between a boy and a girl Between a man and a man We got to try to understand And women, you can help us too We need love from you All we need uh, it, it's, it's something about the guitar and the southern bluesy kind of flavor to it that my older brother and my dad, they really gravitated to that song. And in so many words, he was he was back to that point that this was the day that you really are singing. Really? So, That's you know, what it crystallized they, for him. Yeah. So Hang On In There comes out in, was it 72, 1972? <laughs> I've been reading about you a little bit, and this may bother you, but obviously the its nearest sibling is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got Right? Similar. Now, I didn't. I don't think they sound alike, but it's it's black men singing about the plight of the world from their perspective at a similar time in history, coming from probably a similar perspective, and. Um, I'm wondering, now your album was apparently done before his, but came out after his. Was this sort of, you know, a lot of the big artists are doing this kind of political soul music at the time, bridging love and politics and and um, activism in their music. Were you heavily influenced by that too, I guess is what I'm asking? I mean, is that is that, are you contemplating the message that you want to get across in this music? Um and sort of, um, is it a sort? I want to say, is it uh, is that your goal to sort of educate as you entertain? Well, you know that there's two sides to a songwriter. I don't know if 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 people really understand that. We understand the commercialism and we understand the artistry. A lot of times, you write songs just because it's in your spirit. Uh-huh. And you really never think that, uh, wow, you know what? This is going to hit the market. Yeah. And ironically, right after Victim of Circumstance, I wrote Where's the Soul of Man? Where is the soul? Of property that all mankind says hold a key. And if man is supposed to be king of earth, then tell me who's king of man. Oh, where 
solo man Somebody, somebody tell me if you can Cause if a child tries To love and understand He's labeled a wayward kid by his folks No, he won't join a hating clan I can show my hate In any old public place But to hug and kiss The apex of love It's a dawn disgrace Oh, where is the soul? Where is the soul? Really? I was walking That's a leap on Crenshaw Boulevard in Los Angeles one one afternoon. We, I was just going to visit some friends. Was just walking, uh-huh. and and the song came into my mind. And 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 again, it's funny because that time in my life, we were looking at the events that led up to the assassination of King. Malcolm X had just been killed. You know, it, it was a whole series of of really violent and volatile things. And yeah. the line from Where's the Soul of Man that probably pierced me or that was most poignant to me was the one that says, I can show my hate in any public place, but the hug and kiss, the apex of love is a darn disgrace. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the... Uh, that was the thing that turned me toward bringing the song forward because you could see the the so-called flower children being brutalized by the police department uh-huh. and all they was all they were doing was telling people hey man you don't have to hate me and because they said let's all live and have a common existence they were being beat down by the system yeah yeah and uh that's what fueled that song uh Hang on in there came about from from a colloquialism that we me and a couple of friends had come up with we uh we used to we used to run around we you know we would club together or party together or whatever it is, and when we would uh-huh. leave, we would tell people, "Hey, y'all hang on in there yeah but it 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 was a catchy phrase, so the hook was the hook was set. But the uh-huh. lyric for hang, for hang on in there is something that came. Um, it was bizarre in how it came about because if you really look at the structure and listen to the song "Hang On In There," uh-huh. you'll find that the three verses are really autonomous verses. They they don't necessarily relate to each other, but they. Yeah, but they do relate to the hook. There ain't no time No time for sorrow And we ain't got time No time for time to be saved Maybe the world ain't what it could be But to understand why is to know reality Oh, don't give in Hang on in there I said hang on Hang on in there How many times 
And, you know, you, you, you get up one morning and you realize that you're a farm boy from Mississippi. Yeah. That, but you, did that you know, yeah, your father had to run away from the city because they were trying to kill your brother. And then you say, well, there must be providence. God must have had his hand on this family to produce some stuff. Yeah. When I got that Wake Up album, I was so happy to hear that on there. Because it it validated my own feeling that, like, because I didn't know that much about you, like I said. And so hearing Hang On In There on there, and I'm thinking, great. These taste these tastemakers, these people who know what's up, are are putting some Michael Mike James Kirkland out there in the world, so that others can can find out what I already know. I was so happy to hear that on that album. I loved it. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly gratifying. Uh, I bet. You know, look back, I guess, is the term, and then you know you get a, you get a email from from Spain and somebody asked you to headline their annual festival. Yeah. Uh, it blows away. And then in the weekend of Thanksgiving, we're doing a concert in Los Angeles, uh, co-starring the Young Hearts. Uh, you know, the Young Hearts and us, really? we sang together back in the day. We used to tour together. Really? And uh, there's a birthing of of, of uh, Mike and the Sensations, Bo Kirkland, and uh, Mike James Kirkland. You know, it's yeah. it's funny to it's funny to say it that way, but I've had three careers. You have, you have. Now, okay, I actually, wanna... I've had four. I've had four careers because uh, I have a new gospel album that we released in 2012, right after the John Legend. Uh, album really? and my my son uh, produced the album. My wife and sister in law did the background work. It was, you know, it's it's just it's it won't go away. Yeah. Uh, Lord, you came and you gave your life. You gave your life for me, so that I. bubbling and every that now and then wonderful now on spotify i listen to spotify a lot you've got some stuff on there that i didn't know about already like there's a single on here called wonderful love is that a part of the gospel album that you that's mentioned? yes that's 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 that's, okay. the, that's that's part of it and there's also one uh, just released uh holy matrimony right yeah 
Matrimony is new. That that's from that same CD. Oh, so is it? Is, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. they're all on that same CD. But uh, there's a there's three or four more songs that have been birthed in the last uh, last year and a half or so. And you know, we're okay. banging them out on, on iPad, my pad, everybody's yeah. pad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're great, I, and I'm so it's great to now. Let me ask you this. I mean. Do you make your? How do you make your living? How have you made your living for the last thirty years or so? Is it still music related? I know you're involved with your church. Are you the? Do you make a living as a pastor? How do you pay your bills? Man, I don't pay my bills. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> again, as I mentioned earlier, how do you say this? The organism that God put together and named Mike uh-huh. Kirkland. Uh, is truly an amalgamation of many talents. I can tell. You know, we we market, we we do things, legal things to to uh-huh. support our lives. Uh, we sell records. You know, we we yeah. publish music, so we you know we get royalties and things like that. But most of all, we are able to to function in the marketing uh, businesses we you know we have a marketing company we have a we have a company called Kadeka Media okay and we my wife is the host of a television show well i guess that's the part you that i left out and, well, and 19, that, i wanted to ask you about that yeah okay go ahead yeah yeah 1994 i was working in the northeastern uh community of Los Angeles County called the Antelope Valley. And I became active in in things because I I wanted to be home close to home for my son, my two uh-huh. sons. And he was playing basketball and things. So uh when I when he graduated high school in 92 um we got involved in an organization that started to produce a golf tournament for scholarships for uh, African-American students. And we were focused on the students who were overlooked by the, 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 the okay. more, more prominent scholarship-issuing is, funds. Right. Uh, okay. So we, we developed a golf tournament named after one of the uh, school board members who had died of cancer. And the local television station saw me as the person that was the chairman of that organization. 
And he came and he said, man, you know, the way you conduct this business and you handle this and that, why don't you think about doing a television show? I said, yeah, right. And right after that, I'm going right. to be a pilot. I'm going to right, be a pilot. Right. And then maybe I'll scuba dive after that. Yeah, right. But ironically, he just kept pursuing it. So I said, okay, fine, we'll do it. So we did the television show. We actually named it after the Hang On In There CD. Yeah. And we would open it with the sing- with the single, uh, the song "Where's the Soul of Man." Yeah. Okay. And we 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 um, we used it as a platform for people to express the uh, we we call it to to display the prowess of a budding upcoming group of people. And and ironically, the Antelope Valley has one of the highest concentrations of doctorate degree African-American people of any spot in the world because Edwards oh, Air Force is there, of course, and those things. So okay. I was involved in church community, so we we were kind of marrying all the things together. And I started a program as a tribute to African-American women called the Hang On In There African-American Woman of the Year program. Okay. And we modeled it after an award show like the Grammys or anything else, and organizations would pick their winners, and we would we would certificate them. We gave them certificates from the governor, from city council, from the uh, supervisor, and it was an amazing day. Uh, what people, man, the, the 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 joy, the tears, the adoration, the the, the accolades that we were able to uh, to display uh, for these women was unbelievable. In 1996, in November, one of the guys who had been partners with me, we he had a segment on the Hang On In There show called Hope Without Dope. He was we we were we were doing a recovery and programs yeah. to te- teach kids that they didn't have to get high to be good. Right. He died in a, he died in a car accident. Actually, he, he was in a car accident, and he died at UCLA during a biopsy. They the, the, they were supposed to go in and biopsy his liver, and they missed his liver and hit his uh, hit his oh. lung. What? And he kept telling them that he was bleeding in the chest, that he felt pressure in the chest. They yeah. kept telling they kept telling him you can't have no pressure in the chest because nothing went in the chest. And by the time they realized what was happening with him, he was almost dead, and he died three or four days later. And oh, he was terrible. my really great buddy, man. You know, he yeah. really, but it, it hurt me a lot. I bet. Right, at, right after that, we found out that my wife had breast cancer. Oh, no. And she went through a series of surgeries and, and, and rehabilitation for one breast, and then they found out that she had it in the other breast. Anyway, make a long story short, God had seen fit to deliver her and keep her well. Right. And during her devotional prayer, she came to me and she said, God is saying to me that I need to preach hope to the people. Uh-huh. I said, I said, yeah, that's a good, good, that's good. I, I'm sure that that's something worth doing and it would benefit you by telling your story, and it also will benefit people who are going through a similar circumstance. So uh, 
she said, well, you know I'm not going to get on the plane and fly around the country and preach or teach anything. So he couldn't be talking to me. <laughs> so oh. I said, what do you mean he couldn't be talking to you? He said, you better get talking on that you plane. You her, yeah. So then he, then, you know, she kind of put it on the side. So the same unction that she had gotten about doing the program, feasibility started to come. So I went to the television station that I was doing the Hang On In There program with, and I asked them to quote me a price for a new show at night on my wife. Uh-huh. And I went home and told her, I said, babe, why don't you do it? This hope that you're talking about spreading, why don't you spread it on TV? She said, yeah, right. I said, right. no, I'm serious. I said, I already have a quote coming. As soon as I get the price right, I'll let you know. So they came back and asked me for the national debt. Uh, yeah. I said, what, are you serious? Yeah. I said, no, I, I can't do that. About Two, three days later, the general manager came to me and said, you said you were going to do this program with your wife? I said, yeah, I'm producing it on my wife. He changed the price. It was almost like they gave it to us. No way. So I went to her. I said, you did hear the voice of God. I said, you're virtually getting getting a chance to do this program for free. Wow. So she she became... Like the the talk of the Antelope Valley, her her, her Wednesday night program, Hope TV, was That's an incredible amazing. thing, and we've kept that program going over the years. As a matter of fact, you can see it on the internet now, okay. under Hope TV, uh, under it. our, uh, it's under our uh, uh, organizational name, and I'll give you the website uh, okay. if you want to see it. But yeah, I'd love it. These are the kinds of things that we've done over the course of the years to to stay viable, to uh, yeah. reap some degree of economic uh, sure. stability. You know, we could still use a couple hundred thousand dollar infusion here and there. <laughs> I hear uh, that, but, man. <laughs> but we thank God, man, that we eat every yeah. day. And, uh, you know, our kids are well, and, and uh, we have grandchildren that are budding and you know, it's it's funny because uh, Steve Harvey has a new family feud called Celebrity Family Feud. Uh-huh. And my older grandson was saying, I want to be on uh, Family Feud. And somebody say, it's only for, for, for celebrities. He said, well, we'll take Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. Well, now let me, so this might be, this is kind of a, I'm going to ask you a very point-blank kind of a blood question. Why do you think you are obscure? You know what I mean? And by saying that, I mean, if you're, this is a common theme that comes up with a lot of the people I talk to on this podcast. They put out quality music that's as good as anything else that's out at that same time and of a similar style. It sounds very similar. But for whatever reason, their stuff isn't taking off to the degree that somebody else's stuff might be, even though it's just as good. I hope that that's not offensive of me of me to ask you that. But why do you think why do you think that is? Was it the label you were signed to? Was it 
I don't know. Was it that it did not have a hit? What What do you think held you back from being, you know, uh, a nationwide soul singer to the degree of, you know, the Curtis Mayfields and the Sam Cooks and the Stevie Wonders? Why aren't you in that class? Well, you know, ironically, uh, when we cut Victim of Circumstance, uh-huh. And we had done with it what uh, the challenge that my brother had faced was that he 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 had a bet with somebody that he could cut a record as good as Motown and get it on the radio. And he he made the bet in August, and we had it on the radio in November. Yeah. But we realized that being on the radio was not enough. We had to get some kind of distribution set up where people could get them on many, many, many radio stations. Yeah. So we took the record. Uh, there was a disc jockey in, in Los Angeles named Chuck Mann, who was our friend. And he showed us how to approach uh, Columbia. And Curtis Mayfield was the A&R person there at the time. Wow. And Curtis fell in love with the, with, with the uh, Victim of Circumstance record. He wanted to buy it. And as a matter of fact, he told us that to give him a month, and he would come back with a deal for us to sign to the label. And we were all excited about it. Sure. Be on Columbia, you know, it was it was a big deal. When we went yeah. back and picked up the paperwork, and we looked at the bottom line, they wanted us to sign with that label, and they were going to give us $3,000 for victim of circumstance. Hmm. And we looked at it and said, so what are we going to do with $3,000? Yeah, right. Uh, I think probably the 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 savvy of my brother uh-huh. was a threat to a lot of uh, what record business people were able to get away with. Uh, you know, the publishing aspect, the songwriting right. aspect, and and you've seen the story told thousands of times of some uh, aspiring songwriter or singer or performer being ripped off by some slick dude in the back office yeah, yeah. who takes his, you know, he puts his name on it, but the guy then turns around and signs away his power of attorney and yada, yada, yada. And unfortunately, that was a part of the industry. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you have to ask yourself the question, am I in the industry to make other people rich? Mm. Or do I want something for myself? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've we've had a myriad of different offers, and one of the most uh, insulting components of that was people always trying to buy me away from my brother. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, I uh, I don't understand why my brother and I were such a threat. Huh. You know. Uh, yeah. But well, and he's yeah. I mean, he's kind of the mastermind in some ways behind what behind you. Now, this might be a pointed question. Do you find that you were were you finding at the time that you were being treated differently because you were black? Well, were you know, it's interesting. It's it's interesting when we signed with um, when we signed with Uni. Uh, actually, I'm the review label. After we finished with Victim of Circumstance, there's nothing I can do about it. Don't sell your soul. And uh, 
I Need Your Love. Those were the four masters that we had promised to Highland Records. Russ Regan had been promoted to be the president of Uni Records, who was also came out of the same stable as Highland and uh, Talmadge and Record Merchandising. Huh. So Russ gave us a deal. It just so happens that we signed our deal at the same time that Neil Diamond did. Wow. And the the budget for promotion was skewed to Neil Diamond. Sure. And, you know, I don't have, you know, I don't have anything against Neil Diamond and I don't have anything against the record label, but we were not getting the promotion yeah. that would cause us to skyrocket that way because, like you said, black music did not get those kind of promotional budgets. Yeah, I figured that was it. So, um, you know, we, we played the Chitlin Circuit, and every, and they played Sunset Strip. Yeah, yep. You're a niche to them. They probably, when they sign you or when they when they do allocate budgeting uh, or marketing budgets, they are thinking about how do we break Mike James Kirkland to a wide audience they're thinking, how do we capitalize on Mike James Kirkland in his existing audience, right? And, how do we just and, make him? How do we make other black people buy his album? And sometimes right? they sometimes they buy you off of the guy that they already decided to promote. Yeah, true. Yeah, uh, you know that that's a part of this of the situation too. So you're in a stable, locked off somewhere. Yeah. Where you can't do anything like the Hang On In There album would not have come about, I don't believe, if we were still signed to Uni. I think the fact that we left Uni and became independents again okay. gave us the courage to cut the Hang On In There album because if we had taken our Hang On In There album to the Uni A and R department, uh huh, they would have shot it down. Really, so Uni had a different vision for what where you guys were going, and yeah, and, and you broke away and, they, and you created your thing. Okay. Yeah, they wanted us to keep singing doo wop music, and we yeah, didn't want to yeah. continue to yeah. sing doo wop music. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, they easily look up the record and say, "Oh, that record talks about rain and water. Oh, that's Marvin Gaye's area. That's he's that's his niche." <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. you know I. I know Mar. You know, I knew Marvin Gaye. Uh, we we probably well, we do. We have a lot of similar backgrounds. He came out of the church like me. Mm-hmm. Um, very articulate, talented person. Yeah. So it it wouldn't be unusual for two people who have similar backgrounds to sit down and write about a similar experience. Yeah. Can I ask but, you a personal question, kind of along yes. the lines of Marvin? And if I ever ask you anything you don't want to talk about, just tell me and we'll cut it all out. Um, One thing that is obvious about you, even in our interactions over email, is how spiritual you are. And I'm curious if that has been, you talking about Marvin made me think, I wonder if Mike had dark days, you know? Has Mike always been the person who ends every email with God bless you like he does now? Or were there dark days that Mike had to work his way through 
that got him to where he is now, that's putting out gospel albums, that clearly loves his wife. Um, you don't have to expand on that if you don't want to, but I'm curious if that was ever part of your history. I'm a human man, uh, like everybody else, and you know, I, I would, I would not, at any stretch of the imagination, try to paint some picture of some uh, angelic cat who's walking around named Mike Kirkland. I have my flaws and, and, and my sure. fallacies, but the blessed part for me has been the rooting. Uh, I think that my brother and my dad. They just would not tolerate shucking and jiving. You couldn't lie to my family. Uh, you could you couldn't come up with lame excuses. Um, you know, I had some problems. Uh, they deliver. They helped me deliver myself from the problems. Good. Uh, okay. And it, you know, it, it's not something that uh, you know. I didn't murder anybody, but sure. Uh, sure. You know, the reality was is that humans make mistakes. Yeah. And the blessed part of family is that they rally around you and they they pull you to the you know they pull you to the place you need to go. Yeah. Uh, my my wife actually was the rescuing factor that got me back to the same Jesus that my mom and and family had raised me about all my life. I would rather go to the golf course and mm. and go to church on Sunday morning because I could hit that ball. I could really hit it. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's and great. there, there, there was no greater feeling than to see it go way down the fairway. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then watch everybody else struggle to catch up to it. But it, uh, <laughs> oh, she, it. she took my son, and they found a church called Maranatha Community Church, and. The pastor at that time was his name was Billy Ingram, and he became the pastor to the entertainment industry. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, the the Commodores were in his congregation. Stephanie Got Mills, uh, Billy Davis, Marilyn McCoo, Bo Williams, okay. uh, Philip Bailey. Uh, wow. His wife his wife was a songwriter. Oh, interesting. And. Uh, that's the congregation we wound up in. And this man, Billy Ingham, could make the Bible just come alive. He, he, yeah. he, the, way he, the way he taught it, he made you say, okay, so how come I don't know that? Yeah. And he said, you can know that. Just pick it up and read it and study right. it, and you'll understand it. So... Um, while my son was doing commercials and all of the things that were happening around us, it just never seemed like there was any room to gloat about it. It was huh. something to be thankful for. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to have had 19 gold records. I would love to have 50 Grammys. But I don't think that I would willing to do some of the things yeah. that it may have taken to do those things. Yeah. Uh, and, and the song, Don't Sell Your Soul. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that. 
is is really a mantra that my brother and I developed, and I guess that answers two of your questions. Why didn't we go further? There were some deals that we wouldn't make. Yeah, yep. And some people call it selling your soul to the devil. Well, our souls weren't for sale. We were not going yep. to sell our souls to the devil. And, and you know, it's funny, when I was growing up, I wasn't as I wasn't as afraid of the police uh-huh. as I was of as I was of my dad. Oh yeah. And it yeah, wasn't because it wasn't because my dad was going to beat me. It was because I couldn't look him in the face with the stuff that would be that that I would have been perpetrating in the street. Yeah. That was yep. that was that 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 was denigrating the name that he gave us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was my, gonna ask you about that. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so my uh, my bridal, in quotes, uh-huh. was my family standard. I, I just could not uh, I could not rest thinking that I could do something to shame my mom and dad. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In investigating your music as deeply as I have especially lately, to prepare to talk to you, this idea of not selling your soul is a common theme that comes up through not just your solo albums, but um, I was even watching a, a little clip on YouTube of you being interviewed at a, looks like an album release party at the Ubiquity offices in San Francisco. And you dropped the Don't Sell Your Soul line there, too, in a similar way. And and it's not, you're not quoting it's not like hang on in there. You're not quoting a song. This is clearly a mantra of yours that you just will not compromise on. Never have, never will. And that that ideal tends to rule your life. That's my impression anyway of you. Am I, am I off base? No, that's my aspiration. I, I believe that my call, and, you know, I've been ordained uh, to preach the gospel. I've I've, I've pastored churches, but it's not necessarily the limit of what my focus has been to stand in a pulpit and wait for somebody to walk into church for me to tell them what God said. Mm-hmm. My life on a daily basis, and like you said, about two years ago, I think, maybe, or whatever, it just became a reality in my day to say God bless you, mm-hmm. because if if anybody is down and out, they need a blessing from God. Yeah. First of all, they need to hear that something bigger than them cares about them. Mm-hmm. And then when someone bigger than them care about them, a hope develops, and out of hope comes a new expression of reality for them. Yeah. Yeah, true. But the 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 idea of standing in a building waiting for people to show up, I believe is antithetical to what the evangelical teaching of Christ really is, is that's to go ye therefore into the world and teach everyone about the love of God. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do it with music, I man, yeah. some of the some of the some of the you know, uh it sounds funny. And but my wife is a great speaker. She has a phenomenal ministry, sure. and a lot of times when she speaks, she invites me to sing. Mm-hmm. And 
sometimes when I'm standing there singing and it's after when that she's already quote unquote broken the ground or the bread or whatever that, that mm-hmm. causes people's attention to come to really hearing what, what's being said. You know, I traveled with Stevie Wonder and I played with the Funkadelic Parliament and you know, I've I've been on stage with some really large names. Yeah. Yeah. And people have screamed and yelled and did all the crazy stuff they do for quote unquote the superstar. Mm-hmm. And it's a gratifying thing, but there's not it doesn't even come close to comparing with the satisfaction of seeing people's eyes and hearts open because mm-hmm. they understand that there's a better life that they can have. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want you to know how gratifying it is that you would spend this time with a little Mississippi farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, if if I if my dad was still alive and I'd tell him that somebody from Colorado called and wanted to know more about me, he'd say, show enough. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, my my brother would be elated that the legacy keeps growing and keeps growing. Good. Good. Well, the honor is all mine. I, uh, I've had a fascination with you for many years now, and um, when I started this podcast, you were one of the first names that came to mind. Too late, baby. It's too late. All right, there you have it, Mike James Kirkland. Such a beautiful man. You know, a few weeks ago, he performed a sold-out show in Bilbao, Spain, and he's performing the Saturday after Thanksgiving in L.A. I think that show might be sold out as well. You should check that out. If you like soul music, go go look into his stuff. In fact, we didn't even get to it. He, in around the disco era, he put out an album with a woman named Ruth Davis that's really hot. Great R&B of that era. Probably, you know, utilizing the same formula as Marvin Gaye and Tammy Tyrell. Two great voices come together to make some great music. You should check that out, too. It's all in iTunes. It's great stuff. All right, next week, we are talking to a man named Robert White Johnson. He was the front man of a rock band in the early 80s called RPM. And they put out two albums, one of which I love. It's called Phonogenic. I wanted to find out more about the guy behind this album that I like so much. And it turns out he's one of those people who has sang a jingle or two that you've known, grown up with your entire life. And he also happened to write one of Celine Dion's biggest hits. So the guy is doing fine. In fact, he's doing more than fine. He's a really sought after producer now. But I wanted to find out more about RPM. And so uh, we talk next week. Big thanks, as always, to Yan. Yan the man, Makevich. He's the guy that makes it happen. We're so grateful for him. Hope you all uh, have subscribed to us on iTunes. Hope you all will write a review. Send me notes on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. If you want, we'll stay in touch that way. All right? Thanks, everybody.
There'll be good times again for me and you But we just can't stay together, baby Can't you see that it's true? But I'm glad for what we had And how I once loved you And it's too late, baby It's just, just too late, late. Though we really did try to make it Something inside has died and I can't hide it, I just can't fake it. Just to 